you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Thank you so much, Melissa. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you for blessing us with that. <clears throat> well, me again this week. Um, it's not a normal occurrence for me to be up here two weeks in a row. Promise that Myron will come back. Um, but it's good to be here again with you today, and, it, and it's good to be given the opportunity and the blessing to share with you all again today. Um, last week, I, I kind of gave a challenge in, at the end of the message to seek God in his word and to be careful what we bring into that. And so I hope this week that you did seek him there, that he spoke to you and that he found you uh, in that pursuit. Uh, I also hope you enjoyed this last week. It was a beautiful week. Um, we had a little bit of everything. We had some gorgeous rain to start things out, some beautiful sunshine and some really warm days, but also some cool evenings and mornings, which I am a fan of. Um, I wore a, a sweater for the first time in like four months today, so that was fun. Um, I do love fall. I love the fall season when it comes. I love harvest. But as a guy who also really likes summer and likes walking outside in shorts and just, you know, a t-shirt, not having to put on eight layers to go outdoors, my love of fall is always kind of sprinkled with a bit of a reminder that winter's coming for us. And I love winter too. All of God's seasons and creation is beautiful, but I love it for like two months. And then after that, I start missing and pining for spring. Um... And so stepping into September, as we did this week, with a week like we were given, was just awesome. It was enjoyable, it was beautiful, and it was awesome to be in a place like this, a beautiful place like McGregor, with wonderful people like yourselves to enjoy it with. So um, I was very thankful for the week that we were given. Um, but it's kind of crazy to me that we're in September now. Like, people ask me how my summer went, and I kind of have to stop and say, what summer? <laughs> where, did it, where did it go? You blink and it disappears. Beth and I have had kind of a, a crazy summer uh, ourselves, and we know we're not the only ones, so it kind of did just sneak up on us that all of a sudden we're in September. And I apologize if anybody was deceived and we lied to you because our decal on the window says September services start at 10.45, um, and it says that on our website. Psych, uh, you get one more Sunday today starting at 10 um, <clears throat> before we get into our summer service schedule Sorry, out of our summer service schedule next week. This is your last reminder. It was on the screen. Cody said it. Next week, 9.45 start for Sunday school, 10.45 start for the worship service. So make note of that. If you're not here, no excuse. It's all online. So, um, But I, I bring this up because it's often we, we take a bit of a break and we deviate from our normal messages during the summer. We try to either wrap up a series when summer begins, or we step back and we do a summer series separately. Last year, we went through the Psalms, which was a lot of fun to do, to kind of just pick through some of our favorite Psalms or prominent uh, messages in that space. Um, but this year, and then in September, we kick off with something new, but, or, or get back to uh, the series that we had been in, but we didn't do that this year. <clears throat> we stuck to Jeremiah. Uh, we powered through, and we are on the home stretch. Um, so what's unique about the, today is I'm not wrapping up a summer series, I'm not prepping a new series, but I am kind of in a way wrapping up an aspect of the book of Jeremiah. Um, we are hoping to finish Jeremiah by the end of the month, so for those of you who have been wondering, it's coming. We will get there. But today we're wrapping up an aspect of the book of Jeremiah, looking at chapter 44, so please join me there if you aren't uh, in that area already. Because chapter 44 in the book of Jeremiah is the end of the chronology of the book. So even though we're not at the end of the book of Jeremiah, and even though we have a few more weeks planned, spending time here looking at some very specific things, today we recognize the end of a narrative. We've talked in the past about how the book of Jeremiah is very interesting and also confusing because the entirety of the book isn't written in chronological order. It jumps around a lot, and so it kind of makes it confusing when we get to something and we think, weren't we there like two weeks ago and now we're back? Myron and I sometimes sound like a broken record. I apologize. But if the book was written in chronological order, it would end right here with chapter 44. 
everything that follows today is, is revisiting things that have happened or warnings that have been given and just placed at the end for the sake of emphasis and reminder uh, for our benefit. But today, we're looking at the last of what is written and what is known in the entirety of the biblical narrative of Jeremiah and the remnant who we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. So I hope you're in chapter 44. Um, as we look at it, I would, I would really... I want to ask that you would join me in prayer to give this service to the Lord before I start talking. Um, as I said yesterday, to make sure I am not bringing me or any of thoughts I think are great or good into this, but that we would just be able to see God's word clearly for what it has for us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much today to be here once again, to be given the opportunity, uh, the extreme privilege, but also the weighty call to share your word with these people. I thank you for this community, for this church, for those who are here, the worship that we were able to share together, and now the time spent learning and growing as we look at what you have given us today in this book. God, I just ask that you would guide these words that I will speak, speaking through me, um, to me and through me, and in spite of me, if needs be, Lord, let what comes out today be true and beneficial and edifying for these people in this place at this time. God, guide us. Keep our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, chapter 44. I'm going to do this again, even though some of you are maybe a little tired of it. I'm going to do a recap. We've got to set the stage for this conclusion today of the narrative, uh, because you know, some of us maybe haven't been here throughout the entirety of this series. Maybe we've forgotten what was talked about last week. We need to know what's going on because we are at the conclusion of the narrative with chapter 44, but we're also at the conclusion of this nifty little thing that Myron orchestrated. Uh, Pastor Myron, I should say. Sorry. Pastor Myron. Got to get the full title in there. Um, a mini trilogy that has kind of come out at the end of this book as well. And so we need to understand the background, the setting, and everything that has taken place to bring us here in order to benefit from what is said, okay? So I'm going to try to be way quicker than last week, too. So hold me accountable. Somebody give me, like, a cut it sign if I go too long. If, uh, sorry. <clears throat> What's happening here is God has given a message to his people. God's people, the Hebrew nation, have turned their backs on him and have given themselves over to sin and idol worship. This takes place long before the book of Jeremiah even begins as we look at the books of First and Second Kings and Chronicles. Jeremiah, we understand even his beginning of his time in ministry was in, I believe it was the 16th year of Josiah's reign, King Josiah. And so we can trace all of these issues back a lot further than where we are now. But they have turned their back on God they are worshiping idols. They are living in an abhorrent way to him. And God, his response is to warn them, to warn his people because he loves them to turn back to him. But if they do not turn back to him, there will be consequences. This becomes a cycle of warning and then ignoring on Israel's part, uh, leading up to and including Jeremiah's time and what is written here. Jeremiah, as I said, called during the reign of Josiah, is a prophet called from God who has a simple and unchanging message. The Lord says, return to me, and I will return to you. Be my people, and I will be your God. If you don't, punishment via destruction and exile, an entire generation will come upon you through my chosen instrument, Babylon. Long story short, People don't change. They stick to their wickedness. Babylon comes. Jerusalem is besieged and destroyed. Thousands upon thousands are killed or carried away into captivity um, as slaves in Babylon. But a select few have been allowed to remain in Jerusalem in accordance with God's plan as the remnant. Like I said, we have a mini trilogy here um, talking about these people. The remnant, God's deposit right, for future redemptive plans. That's it. That's my recap. I feel like I shoehorned that in a lot better than I did last week. Um, that brings us to today, to this trilogy. Um, a trilogy that these last two weeks worth of sermons, these last two chapters, all of these things very intimately connected and probably could be titled, if you were to 
like go to Hollywood with this story and an idea for a trilogy as the Remnant trilogy. They have been the focus and the thing that we've looked at closely over the last two weeks, and we're going to again today as we wrap up the story. Two weeks ago in chapter 42, Pastor Myron preached on the remnant, understanding a biblical pers- from a biblical perspective what it is and what it means to define it. His biblical definition that he had on the screen, if you don't remember, was a remnant being a small group of people, a minority, the Lord's faithful followers who represent him in a larger setting. Right? A deposit, we would understand today, like a modern down payment. You're putting your name in for something that's coming later to secure God's future plans for redemption for his people. Right? A savior that was planned through these people from this land. And then for us today to recognize ourselves as a minority, as the remnant in the world today, God's people called to be a light for him in a broader setting. Our deposit, though, differing from Jerusalem's, is this. They were a deposit that was placed in the land knowing that Jesus would come from there to save all of mankind. We today are to shine and represent to be a deposit knowing that the church anticipates Christ's return and is here to prepare the world for it. Right? So that was week one of the trilogy. Last week we looked at what happens with that remnant, that deposit, when they continue to deny the lordship of our God and what happens when personal pride becomes a leading player in the way we approach God's word, how we discern it. We looked at two individual men. We kind of did a character study on Jeremiah and Johanan. Right? Johanan is a guy who fits the bill from an, uh, from an early time in his introduction to the book, uh, an earthly standard of good guy, leader, military, political, this is the guy who's going to get us out. And then he ultimately fails um, a man who couldn't believe that God's word or will would ever differ from his own, right? He took that heel turn from saying, Jeremiah, pray to God for us. We're going to do whatever he says. Should we go hide out in Egypt? And as soon as God's message, his response comes saying, no, stay in the land I've allotted to you, Johanan says to Jeremiah, no, that's not God's word. You're clearly a false prophet because this doesn't line up with what I've already decided is the best plan. We took that and then we held it in contrast to Jeremiah himself. A man who even though the message had never changed from beginning to end, the 42 chapters that preceded it, Return to me, I will return to you. Stay in the land, trust me, I will protect you. You will endure as my chosen people. Knowing that that message had never changed, still took the time to seek God to be sure of what God's desire was for his people. And the response didn't. Repent, turn, stay in the land, trust me. That answer stayed the same. And so our lesson was to learn to avoid the mindset as we look at God's word of, I think, so this must mean, and lean more into a, this says, so I must think and I must do. Being careful what we bring into God's word as his remnant so that we might shine properly and brightly in this world. Adhering to God's word, to his order, to his plan, that we might continue to be set apart for him as we wait for his return and his cleansing. And this all comes to a head today with chapter 44. We tie these two things together as any good trilogy does. We come to the great conclusion in regards to our function today as the remnant and in regards to this remnant's role that they played and what God ultimately did with those who did not follow him. Today, what we're going to see, if you wanted to title this beyond Jeremiah part, whatever we're on in this series, you could say that a loss of focus leads to a loss of deposit. That's what happens here. That's what takes place in the third installment, Um, but we need to tie together everything and how we do that, how we try to relate to these people who ultimately failed, who ultimately dropped the ball, who didn't keep with what God called them to and were removed from his plan, how does that apply to us today? 
hopefully we're not in that same boat as them. To find out application today, we need to look at the challenge they were given, Jerusalem remnant, right? And how they responded to these words. And then look at what God has called us to today and be very honest and real with ourselves about how we respond to that, to that same call. This is what we see in chapter 44. God continues to speak to the remnant through Jeremiah. I just think that's really cool as well. People who are so utterly disobedient, people who are so hardened and turned away from his plan, people who have denied him again and again and again, and yet God is willing to step down, to speak to Jeremiah, to call out to these people because they are his people. And as God speaks to Jeremiah, he does so in this really cool way. He presents a three-part kind of presentation for this remnant now hiding out in the nation of Egypt. He gives them a history lesson, a plea to change, and then he follows it up with a hammer drop. When he does that, he lets the people have a chance to respond before final judgment is proclaimed. And I want you to remember those things. History lesson, plea, hammer, because we're going to circle back to them in regards to ourselves today, okay? The history lesson for the remnant in Egypt begins in verse 2. The word came to Jeremiah, verse 1, right, concerning all the Jews living in all these different places in Egypt. But in verse 2, we begin seeing this. If you would join me there and look at it together. Verse 2, chapter 44. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You saw the great disaster I brought on Jerusalem and on all the towns of Judah. Today they lie deserted and in ruins because the evil they have done. They provoked me to anger by burning incense and by worshiping other gods that they neither knew, sorry, that neither they nor you or your fathers ever knew. Again and again, I sent my servants, the prophets, who said, do not do this detestable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their wickedness or stop burning incense to other gods. Therefore, my fierce anger was poured out. It raged against the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and made them desolate ruins as they are today. As much as these people have seen the due course of their actions, right? God in his amazing grace um, reminds them of where this has always ended up and where this is going. Sometimes we struggle to see the long game, don't we? I know there's some golfers in our congregation here. Um, I enjoy going golfing. I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. And one time I went golfing with some guys here in McGregor, and off of hole one, if you know, it kind of goes straight, and then it runs a bend to to the green, and there's trees, bush along that bend, so you can't really see where the green is. And my strategy has always been just shoot at what I can see. So straight shot, then turn, and try to get to that green. And I was there with this guy who piped up and just said, why don't you just shoot over the trees? Give that a try. To which I responded, I don't know what I'm shooting at or where I'm going. And he, in a very sarcastic, weenie-ish way, said, we were just here last week. You've been here before. It's not that hard. It's one turn. I had been there before. I had played. I knew where the green was, but I couldn't see it, and so panic uh, was my response. And that's the exact same thing that's happening here. I had seen it. I had been there before. They had been there before, too. They played this game. They've seen where it leads. This history lesson isn't just their forefathers and the people who came before them. It's them. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the very thing that they just stepped away from out of those ruins into something that looked better to them. On a side note, I did try going over the trees and I hopelessly lost my ball in the bush. Thank goodness this is not a message about my golf skills and you didn't hire me for that or my baseball skills. The Sunday school picnic was embarrassing for me. Um, But these people shouldn't have needed that reminder, right? They were there. They had just literally been there But because God cares for his people, even when they're being obstinate like these are here, because his plan for a savior, Jesus, who would come, is from these people, he looks to them again and asks, 
Why? Here's the plea, the second part of this, this three-part presentation. There's your history warning. Why? Look at verses 7 to 10 with me. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Why bring such great disaster on yourselves by cutting off from Judah the men and women, the children and infants, and so leave yourselves without a remnant? Why provoke me to such anger with what your hands have made, burning incense to other gods in Egypt where you have come to live? You will destroy yourselves and make yourselves an object of cursing and reproach among all the nations on the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness committed by your fathers and the kings and queens of Judah and the wickedness committed by you and your wives in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? To this day, they have not humbled themselves or shown reverence, nor have they followed my law and the decrees I set before you and your fathers. The message presented now is no longer looking backwards at what's happened. It's looking at what is currently happening now. You saw that. Why are you doing this? Why? The Lord says, you know I hate sin. Look at verse 4. It's detestable to him. And yet you keep doing these things that you know, you know, are so wrong in my eyes and according to my law. This can only hurt you. How have you forgotten this is on you? That's ultimately where we land on this. This is on you. It's very interesting, I find, that unlike those who were taken away into Babylon, we talked about this in regards to the siege of the city and the exiles that were taken. Why were the exiles taken who were? The prominent of the nation, the leadership, uh, the royalty, the educated. It's because they were to be indoctrinated into Babylonian culture to keep Israel, God's people, from ever getting a second chance or a second thought at standing up against them and being their own thing. You're one of us now. The people who are taken away into Babylon to be indoctrinated is not these people. There's no one here holding a knife to their throats telling them or forcing them into these practices of idol worship. This was their choosing. It's on them. There was no one saying, you got to do this. You have to go that way. You have to turn like this. They were given every opportunity. They were left in the city. They were where the temple was, where worship took place. They had the freedom to do so. And yet those who left into exile, those who were attempted to be indoctrinated, fared much better in regards to their pushback against idol worship and how they followed the Lord. Israel does not adhere the fact that this remnant stepped backwards is astonishing. And again, it's on them. And because of this, God then drops the hammer. Part three. History lesson, plea, hammer. Look at verses 11 to 14 with me, if you would. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am determined to bring disaster on you and to destroy all Judah I will take away the remnant of Judah who were determined to go to Egypt to settle there. They will all perish in Egypt. They will fall by the sword or die from famine. From the least to the greatest, they will die by sword and famine. They will become an object of cursing and horror, of condemnation and reproach. I will punish those who live in Egypt with the sword, famine, and plague as I punished Jerusalem. None of the remnant of Judah who have come sorry, <clears throat> who have gone to live in Egypt will escape or survive to return to the land of Judah to which they, have, which they long to return and live. None will return except for a few fugitives. Game over. It's done. Your part in this story is finished. I am withdrawing my deposit. seems kind of harsh and it seems interesting that God's plan revolves around people in this place, around those he has chosen to keep there and now he's saying you're done. You never get to come back to this thing, to this place. Your role in my future plans nixed. This doesn't sound like a very fun story or a very fun trilogy looking at the remnant, does it? 
And it makes it kind of difficult or interesting when we think about application today. When we think about these repercussions and then we think about today, our modern application and where we fit into all of this, I just want to say this. Thank goodness we don't have idols to stumble over anymore. I mean, it's very interesting, Carl and Brenda, that you shared that there are people in this nation who do, who have little things in their house. But thank goodness we don't hear, right? In McGregor area, in North Norfolk. Thank goodness there's no, I've, I mean, I've never been into one of your houses and seen a little wooden man in the doorway that I, you know, have to kiss or talk to when I come in. There's no stone or metal people hanging around that we thank for what's come to us. Especially nothing quite so bad as the queen of heaven who gets mentioned further down in this, in this story. If you look at verse 17 and then a number of other times beyond, there's this person that they're worshiping, the queen of heaven, known by some nations as Ishtar or um, Ashtoreth, Astarte. Some called her Diana or Artemis. Um, she was believed to be the wife of the false god, the idol Baal. And she was a god of fertility who required overt sexual acts for her worship. Baal and the queen of heaven sound like quite the combo, right? Baal was the god of fruitful harvest, right? If you wanted your crops to grow, you went to Baal. If you wanted your family to grow, you went to the queen of heaven. Again, thank goodness these things aren't problems for us today. And now with sincerity, I do apologize for being very sarcastic right now. My goodness, how shocking is it that these things are still such an issue in our world, our little rural conservative world here in North Norfolk. These things are there. We live in a world where everything is over-sexualized, where sexuality is championed, but it's also fluid now, and you can decide or change what is or isn't. All these things are championed, and all these things are, are put on a pedestal, and beyond that, there's, there's more than that that we're dealing with here. We farm out here. Crops and weather and all those things are important to us. Family is very important in this culture, in this place, which I'm thankful for. But these are all things that can still be idolized. Today, your possessions can be, your work can be, your family can be. But the worst one of all, the worst idol that we deal with in this world today is this. And it's kind of a hard one to say because it's not fun to hear. It's you. It's me. It is self and the elevation of self. We become the central focus of our own lives in a very sneaky and very dangerous way. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, The Father Loves You, wrote this, What other gods could we have beside the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals and those who surrounded that pantheon, those jolly good-natured gods, sorry, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. But for us today, there are still the great gods of sex, money, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one God, self. There is another enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All about me, right? Football, the firm, family are also the gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless, for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god, and the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. Another quote I came across this week that was uh, just very simple, kind of in regards to what Packer just said, but a, a pastor by the name of John McMath said, Today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. A person's own pride in being, their personal standing, their position, 
me, me, me. It's the thing they give their heart to more than anything. Many other perceived idols are just feeding that monster. Now, when we look at this and we look at ourselves today, we may not be seemingly in as open of a rebellion as this remnant was outwardly, right? They are very clearly offering incense to this queen of heaven. They're baking stuff and giving it to her. They're bowing down to her. They're doing all of this stuff. But what they're doing outwardly, we today can stand in agreement with God's word from an outward glance and be absolutely at war with him inwardly. elevating things in our lives and even our very selves, right, and our pride into an idol-like position. This is what the remnant did. As much as they talk about the queen of heaven, this is what they are doing, okay? Look again uh, with me, starting at verse 15 in chapter 44 here. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in the lower and upper Egypt... All those living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen. We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven, and we will pour out drink offerings <clears throat> to her, just as we and our fathers and our kings and officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food, and we were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and by famine. The women added, When we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes like her her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? There's an arrogance in their response. We'll do what we want. We're not going to listen. But the most telling part is verses 17 and 18 where they say, we had everything we could have wanted while we were worshiping her. Our lives were great. And as soon as you brought forward this thing, everything went to pot for us. We want that comfort back. We want our position back. We want that life back for ourselves. There was no love here seen for the queen of heaven. There was no admiration or reason for worship. There was just them and their thing that they wanted back. The love of self is what was evident in their worship. The writing was on the wall for this in in the last chapter as well, remember? When Jeremiah brought the response to their request for prayer to them, what did it say as to whether or not they should go to Egypt? Just look back on the next of the last page chapter 43 verse 2 Azariah son of Hoshiah Johanan son of Korea and all the who the arrogant the prideful the insolent your translations might say men said you're lying they were prideful they were right clearly i am the master of my own destiny and you can't tell me otherwise How could I not be right? I'm great. Look at me, Mr. Johannan, war hero, savior of the people. But you know what? We do similar things today. Again, you may not be a war hero who's, you know, saving us from an invader or something like that. But maybe that pride comes or or that thing comes in these ways, looking at a former way of living and pining for the lack of accountability we once had, longing for that freedom, for that ability to be the master of your own destiny. Elevating perceived social, economic um, work gains that come with this self-elevation and I'm number one. Or maybe we look at others in this world and what they have and we ask questions about Why such wicked people receive such great things by our estimation? Look at Hollywood. Look at the music industry. Look at those that we 
put up on a platform and say, I want to look like that, I want to sound like that, I want to be like that. Their lives are a promotion of self and a selling of self to get whatever it is that they want. I don't know how it gets you. I know how it gets me in my own personal walk, how these things sneak in, how they catch you with your guard down, how they get you. Self can become one of the greatest battles with idolatry that we face. And these people's pursuit of idol worship was because they had elevated their perceived and immediate need, their selves, as the greater thing over God, his law, his plan, and their part to play in his plan. Again, today we do the same. We can't see past ourselves in the immediate thing. We want to have the answer. We want to have the solution. We want to have the security that used to be. We want that thing. You ever give a kid candy and then take the candy away? What does that kid want? They want their candy. Candy comes out in different forms. This idolatry, idolatry comes out in different forms. But remember this trilogy. Remember the need, the, the remnant that we talked about, the need to stay focused and not take ourselves into God's word, right? Part three of the trilogy is, if you don't, deposit will be removed. Now, anybody here, who, who here likes watching movies or reading books? You ever got to the end of a trilogy and everything is, you know, unresolved and unconcluded? That's not good writing, right? You don't read Lord of the Rings, which I'm a fan of, and get to the end and the bad guys win and everything goes sideways. That's not a good, who wants to read that book? All the pages prior are pointless. The reason I'm saying that is this. We're called to shine today as the remnant. We talked about that. We're called to adhere, to not take ourselves into this thing, but to bring God out of it, to look for him and follow him. This week, our application in this trilogy is a call to keep our focus, our vision on him, on God, on Jesus, to stay faithful, to stay humble, they didn't. Because if you, if you want to be the main character in the story, it's going to come across as bad writing, right? If the remnant is the main character in this story, that's not a great conclusion. If you and I are the main character in your own story, it doesn't always look good, right? But if God is the main character in the story... This changes things. For this situation, God can, will, and did find someone else to be his deposit, to shine bright, to proclaim, to follow him. He brought a remnant back from Babylon, and through them the promise was fulfilled. Right? Interesting that the people who were sent away to be turned into something else are the ones who were faithful and came back. God says to his people, here in their insolence. Look at verse 25. Go ahead, basically, right? This is what the Lord, the Almighty, the God of Israel says. You and your wives have shown your actions, by your actions, what you promised when you said, we will certainly carry out the vows we made to burn incense offerings and to pour out drink offerings to the Queen of Heaven. Go ahead then. Do what you promised. Keep your vows. But hear the word of the Lord. All the Jews living in Egypt, I swear by my great name, says the Lord, that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt will ever again invoke my name or swear as surely as the Lord lives. I am watching over them no longer for good, but for harm. Go ahead, he says. Keep those vows you made. Don't think, though, that you can just come back to me as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You've proven where your loyalty lies and where your heart is. He knows the heart of man greater than they know it themselves. And in fact, I'm not watching over for you anymore. No more good for me will come to you. Rather, I still see you, but there's punishment, there's harm that is coming as I promised it would. I used this line from last week. When the people see him as just a power to enlist and not a God to trust, the response from him will cease. 
God's not a gumball machine where you can live however you want and go put in a quarter prayer and get what you want. He knows your heart. He knows what's there. Again, to many, this may seem like harshness that terrifies in a God who doesn't come across necessarily as loving or forgiving in any way. But remember, he knows the people's hearts and he knows that they don't truly love him or believe him. They will carry any name forward in front of themselves that they believe will save themselves because it's all about them. But you know how we do know God is gracious and loving? I'm going to steal from chapter 45 this week. I know Pastor Myron wants to be there next week. I'm just going to take a little bit so I don't take anything he wants to focus on. Look at chapter 45 at Baruch. And now we know this guy is Jeremiah's assistant, his scribe, the guy who's been following him around, taking the licks with him. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told Baruch, son of Neriah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. So this is again, right, happening long before this took place, but it's here for this reason. After Baruch had written on a scroll the words of Jeremiah, then dictating, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, woe to me. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning, and I find no rest. And the Lord said, say this to him. This is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you, I will let you escape with your life. Baruch, even, comes forward with, where's mine? You've added sorrow to my pain. I'm worn out with groaning. I find no rest. Me, 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 me. And God's response is, should you seek great things for yourself? There's a very interesting story about this I heard this week about, I'm a big Charles Spurgeon fan. That's no secret to any of you who have listened to me more than once. Um, Charles Spurgeon, applying to go to Regent College, I believe it was, to begin his theology training, um, goes for his interview, and through a a series or an unfortunate situation of bad communication, he misses his interview, and he's unable to enroll and attend the school. Charles Spurgeon is devastated. He's angry. He's upset, and he goes wandering through the countryside, questioning God and why he would do this to him. And then the word of the Lord was imparted upon him or imposed upon him. Remember the words of Jeremiah 45. Should you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. He ended up going to to post-secondary university. He ended up being trained. He ended up being one of the greatest preachers ever seen in the English language. They call him the Prince of Preachers. But it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his time, his plan, his perceived, this is the way it needs to be. It was God's timing, God's plan, God's purpose. Seems to me the maturity was lacking initially with that interview, and maybe he needed that moment before he went back. Baruch, this is written long before, right? During the fourth year of Jehoiakim. We're going way back. There's got to be a turn for him because here in chapter 44, at the end of it all, he's still there with Jeremiah, getting hauled off to Egypt against his will and choosing with these terrible leaders who destroyed this remnant. And we can look at God's promise to Brooke. Yeah, it's going to get bad, but don't worry, I got you. You'll survive. You'll be taken away as, uh, with your life as a prize of war. Whenever the people get conquered, you'll live. You'll just follow the next group. Again, we can look at the fact that Brooke lives and try to make that the light at the end of the tunnel and the happy ending, the good conclusion to this trilogy but it's really hard to do that when we see the death and the brokenness that surrounds his promise given to him. Every good trilogy needs its good ending. And this one seems really sour, even though one guy was given this answer, because 
Jeremiah, the man that Baruch was following, we know this is the end of the biblical account of anything written about him, but extra biblical accounts tell us that he was killed in Egypt. Stoned by the remnant is what history tells us. Those people he spoke to and served, the people he came back to when he was given an out, you can come to Babylon and live comfortably, not as a slave. No, I'm going to stay here. Didn't end great for the, uh, the weeping prophet. But again, is Jeremiah the main character of the story? Is Baruch? No. This is God's word. God's book. Jesus, fun fact, is the main character of the story beginning to end Genesis to Revelation. You don't have to abuse the Old Testament to find him there. The reason for the remnant is what? It's Jesus. That he would be born of those people in that land to save God's people and the rest of us. He's the main character. Now remember the pattern with which God spoke to them. Plea, uh, history, plea, hammer. Then he lets the people respond. The respond is poor, so judgment comes. We've been given the history. We've been shown what's happened, right? We've been talking about it for a number of weeks now. Beyond that, we can look at church history. How many of us in the church study church history and see the ups and downs and the really sideways moments of the church? We've been warned. And then we've been given that plea, that call. Why would you remain in sin and death when life is offered in Jesus Christ? Follow me. The hammer was dropped very much on his son. Punishment for sin. There's consequences for it. History laid out, a call given, punishment for sin poured out, wrath poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. How will we respond? Do we love him and follow him because of what it gives us? Or rather, just because he's worthy? Is he worthy of our praise? Is he worthy of our worship? Is he the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is he the God and creator of all? He is worthy. The rest is just a wonderful gift that we haven't earned or deserved. But wowee, isn't it great? What's our response? What judgment or joy waits for us as the church? Um, I'm going to share another um, little quote with you that I just came across this morning, actually. It wasn't originally planned to be in here. N.T. Wright uh, once said, You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object or person of your worship. Do we bring ourselves into this so much that we become, oh man, so selfish and, and, and self-focused and unaware of what's around us Or do we focus on him? Is he the subject of our gaze, our awe, our admiration, and our wonder? Sorry. If he is, it should be noticeable. The remnant called to shine. Given this to endure, Do you want to be the deposit? I know I do. That second coming far outweighs any good gift this world can give. And you know what? I'm just going to be honest with you all. It's really easy to speak that and say, come on, guys, let's go do it. But to have the word of of rebuke and correction come to you is a a lot less fun. Um, I've, I've had to be in that place. Having kids this year now, all of a sudden, my perspective on, like, let's go home, Lord, I'm ready, has changed because all of a sudden it's like, I want to see this thing. I want to see how this plays out. But how much better is his promise for what's to come than the hardship they might have to endure? 
seeing them grow and, and learn about him, a blessing, yeah, that definitely would be. But reuniting with him, what a far greater thing to desire and pursue, living for him. We, as the remnant, are called to shine here and now. A light on a stand can't be hidden. A city on a hill gives its light for all to see. We, as the remnant, that is our call and commission. This deposit we don't want removed. Faithfulness and endurance we hope for, for us as the church. I love you guys. Um, it's been a blessing serving in this community. I was pretty anti-Manitoba when I first came here because it's just like clouds of mosquitoes that you couldn't see through roaming across the yard and, you know, flooding and wood ticks. Albertans are like the Texans of, Can of Canada where we're like, woohoo, like let's be our own thing. And I love this place. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I've learned to see that, but I love you, the people, in this place. And so I desire for us to grow in this thing, to be that thing, to be that remnant. Lord, encourage us and guide us that we would. Lord, give us accountability with one another. Lord, let us endure to the end that your promise, your gift, and your blessing would not be removed from us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the warnings of history that we can learn from. I pray that we would not finger point in pride because, Lord, we recognize that as the root of the problem that happened here. We can only come to the beginning of Christ when we've come to the end of self. We know that we are in desperate need of you. God, turn our eyes to the cross. Let us come back there day after day, preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, reminding ourselves of why that cross is such a beautiful image for us, a gift for us, a punishment that was meant for us, a, a debt that could never be fully repaid. But you did. You laid a deposit that Christ would come, that we would be yours. And now, Lord, we are a new deposit for your return. I pray that we would be faithful in preaching and speaking and shining for you in this world. Let us not be content, Lord, with where we've been. Let's look forward to what's coming with anticipation, with joy, because you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.